KCSU listeners. This is another edition of the KCSU Sports Podcast. I'm Jonathan Gillum. This edition, we have a special guest joining us, and we'll be talking about a more serious sports talk. It's something we're going to take a deep dive into, and this is in the context of midsummer 2020, where post-George Floyd murder and the protests that are going on. I think for me personally, it was a time to kind of step back and reflect and and what are some of the issues that we are still dealing with. And in the sports department, it's um, there are still issues that we are dealing with now even. Um, and I think that's a, something that I want to take a deep dive into and address. So without further ado, we're going to move into our guest. Our next guest is a faculty member of the Ethics Studies Department at Colorado State University with a concentration of African-American studies. He received his PhD from the University of Chicago. He has a plethora of publications available and he's also a winner of the of the Colorado State University's 2016 Best Teacher Award. I am pleased to welcome Dr. Ray Black. Dr. Black, thank you so much for your time and consider it. How are you doing? I am doing great and thank you for the invitation, Jonathan. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, so let's just go ahead and get right into this and dive into the topic of, of some of the evidence of the bias and racism still present in sports. So first question, Dr. Black, your 2019 study on the criminalization of elementary aged boys of color would could be a root of one of the problems of how we treat African-American adult athletes. So what are your thoughts on how children are socialized into this framing of criminalization of African-American children leading to their adult life and how might this be affecting African-American athletes? There is, uh, and the, the focus, the study I did with Dr. Basil was talking um, about primarily elementary school age and when you try and break out of that. Uh, but it starts, believe it or not, in preschool and it goes all the way up and uh, what we call the racialization. And racialization is the process of you're a person and then your environment tells you that you're a black person and what a black what is expected of a black person both positively and negatively one example is we've heard this discussion of the talk well the talk is how you as a black person male female other interact with law enforcement uh you did we hold the, the hands up don't shoot i can't breathe this is the outcome of the talk, the failure of the behavior on the hands of law enforcement. So that's a long way of saying that if you're expected to be accused, criminalized, regardless of what you do, then sometimes you're more cautious. And the caution then leads you to behave in certain ways like, okay, well, I'm not going to go there and, and do these kind of things. Uh, and when you get into sports and you get into especially football and you know you start with the peewee leagues and going up up into college football and then into the pros you you have based on your talent level you have ways that you can behave the more talented you are the more you can be outrageous uh, which is excused because of your talent but the less talented you are the less you have that leeway but still within the framework of you are a black athlete, you will behave in this manner. Is that, is that helpful to, to understanding the framing that starts in how you're behaving as a racialized person? 
Yeah, I, th- I think that that does. And, and since it starts at such an early age, I think that's what's important to highlight that, it you know, before they even start playing sports or like you said, in peewee age, how important that is or how it ha- affects them at that age. So, yeah. yeah, it's very informative. So let's move on to the, the next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, so in sports, there is overwhelming evidence that African-American athletes get punished differently compared to, to white athletes. Just to add some background context, um, so wide receiver Brandon Marshall, he's a former Denver Broncos player. Um, he appears on the NFL as an analyst sometimes, has gone on record saying white player, players, specifically at the quarterback position, are treated differently. Furthermore, just to add more examples, Dr. Simmons of the University of California did a kind of documented a study on some clear examples, and he used examples as um, how African-American athletes are not allowed to trash talk, but at the same time, they have to take verbal abuse from their coaches. He points out African-American athletes get punished for celebrations, but on the other hand, coaches are slapped on the wrist for their verbal abuse and even violence. Um, Bob Knight is a great example. He is known to have even used physical violence. And then Terrell Owens was always punished for his extravagant celebrations. So those are some examples. So Dr. Black, what do you think are the causes of this organizational bias against African-American athletes? And I want to break it out also by sports, because if you look at the way athletes are treated in professional basketball and they're treated in professional football, there's a wide range of difference. You have coaches in basketball, uh, Greg Popovich uh, and um, Steve Kerr, to name two, who are very, very, very outspoken and positive for uh black lives and supportive of both their athletes and the community in in these protests where you have the prime example of Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick, and you know, when he was a Niner and now that he's still a free agent, uh, in his the way that he has been treated from the highest levels of the country, but supported at least four years ago when this all started by the NFL. And I mean, not supported, but challenged and ostracized and, and, and kept out. So the part of the important thing to remember, and I'm going to get back to, to Kaepernick in a second. Part of the important thing to remember is the organization dictates, sets the tone for the rest. So if you have the head of the league, uh, the head of the NFL saying that we will not have these protests and you have these owners saying, if you protest, you won't be on this team. Uh, then that sends a larger ripple effect. And these are the things that we see in the press of all the hundreds of football players in every organization and, and, and the teams. There are lots of smaller incidents that say, you cannot do this. Where the NFL, I mean the NBA on the other hand, this is promoted. You have LeBron James as one of the leaders uh, out front saying, you know, we, we support this and they're supported by the league and they're not punished in the way Brandon Marshall was and other football players have been. So the organization, the professional uh, organization sets the tone for those athletes. Uh, one of the things is, is, is we're, and I'm writing about this now, about how the protesters looked over time. When Kaepernick was kneeling a couple of years ago, he drummed out of the league, essentially. Friday, Less than a week ago, uh, Roger Goodell is making a video saying that he was wrong. Now, he didn't use Kaepernick's name, as a lot of people have pointed out, but the, the perception of the problem 
and the ways to draw attention to it can change. And that's through the actions of folks who have will take the action like Kaepernick and then suffer for it, but their cause comes to light and they'll, they'll celebrate it or the cause will be brought up. So there is a difference. You know, you can imagine Tom Brady saying Black Lives Matter. Would he suffer for it? He, most likely he would not. <laughs> he would not. And uh, who's my man in uh, Breeze? Yeah, Drew Breeze. Drew Breeze down in, in, in uh, New Orleans. He had to had to uh, do his mea culpa and, and really then go and challenge the occupant of the White House saying, hey, you know, this is this is this is not correct. I know, and I do know to add, I know several athletes uh, have gone on record saying that they changed their mind when they actually kind of saw the root of the, the protest. I know, for mm-hmm. example, <clears throat> Tyler Palumbus of the uh, Sports Radio 104, the fan has gone on and said, I didn't support him at first. And then I realized what was truly going on and he has retracted and now he supports him. So mm-hmm. change can happen. Yeah. And this is, this is not unusual because if you look at uh, in, a, in our own last 50, 60 years, going back to the most famous case of Muhammad Ali, going back to John Carlos and Tommy Smith, uh, who had their careers destroyed. And at the end of uh, Ali's life, he is a hero and celebrated and leading the torch at the Olympics. And uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who are just turning 75 and 76, they're still around. They are, they are heroes, and before I was at uh, Colorado State, we, we lived in the Bay Area in Oakland, and they are celebrated. There's a statue at San Jose uh, City College for them uh, when they were basically prohibited after 68. So if you think the 20, 30, 40 years it took for Carlos and Smith to go from ostracized to heroes and four years for the NFL to recognize Kaepernick as without but the idea but not his name uh, hopefully the, the the difference between the moments of protest and the recognition that there's something valid behind the protest is shorter and shorter from from years hopefully to months and days if not instantaneously and yeah maybe the events that took place are the the catalyst to accelerate the the movement even further like kind of like you were saying you know maybe this is the the jump start the like leagues like the nfl needed to really make change faster so yeah that's another another great answer dr black let's move on to the next uh, question so uh i noticed how you were definitely highlighting how the nba tends to be definitely more friendly towards their athletes than the NFL. And I have noticed that too. So my next couple questions are kind of towards the NFL. So the NFL has made attempts to address diversity. They had the old Rooney rule, which was in place to require an NFL team to interview a minority candidate. Well, the rule hasn't appeared to help, even though the majority of the players in the NFL are African-American athletes and the head coaching job hiring process seems to overlook African-American candidates. Even though there are numerous qualified candidates, a perfect example of this is many believe that the Chiefs offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy was considered highly qualified. He just yeah. won a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And there was, I believe, seven or eight head coaching vacancies this season, and he was not offered a, a job and was not yeah. hired. Today, there are only three African-American head coaches, Anthony Lynn of the Chargers, Mike Tomlin of the Steelers, and Brian Flores. So, Dr. Black, what are your thoughts on the failure of the Rooney Rule and a connection to de facto racism? 
Ooh, the fact of racism. Thank you for bringing that term up. Uh, and just to be clear, there's what we call de jure racism or racism by law. The most famous case of this was the decision of Plessy Ferguson in 1896, which was overturned by Brown v. Board in 1954, which desegregated schools and made uh, segregation illegal. But that left, as you say, de facto segregation in fact. Uh, and that is uh, part of the larger society and I'm trying to keep from my academic professorial speech here. The Rooney Rule uh, was an attempt to break out of this idea that you only hire people you're familiar and comfortable with. And all of the owners in the NFL are, are rich white men uh, and they are comfortable with those who appear like them. The Rooney Rule was an attempt to say, hey, at least look at this. So you get a Tomlin, you get um, a man who was uh, 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 the, the Super Bowl with, um, he was a Tampa Bay, he's a commentator now. Why is the name? Tony Dungy? Tony Dungy. Uh, I can't, my my wife is his second cousin, her last name is Dungy, so I okay. she will... When she hears this, she's going to be very upset that I couldn't remember her own name and his cousin. Um, so when, when you get, and he was at Tampa Bay and then he, 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 he went to uh, Indianapolis, but why aren't, why weren't his coaches looked at? Uh, and the, the firings last year of why we're down to three coaches is a question. Yes, there's an issue of performance, but there's also an issue of, are you really looking at talent? Mm -hmm. And that was the, uh, the attempt at Rooney Rule. It's like, look, at least put these people in a room so they can impress you, so Mike Tomlin can impress you and, and, and do that. But the, the, the implicit bias of not seeing talent over race. Mm -hmm. And part of the understanding of diversity that I want to, want to promote is diversity makes you uncomfortable. You may have a coach who is perfectly talented and relates to your players and is a good strategist, but is an African-American and doesn't talk in ways that you're comfortable with, but will be good for your team. And getting between the success of what made you be in the position to own a team and then listening to somebody who has a different opinion or different approach, a different perspective than you, is very difficult at all level. And that's reflected in the larger society. If you look at even politics, people tend to vote for who they think they're comfortable with, even though the policies may be better for somebody who is different uh, than what they are. So that this is the problem in, in when we're doing hiring, we have an equal opportunity pledge uh, uh, commission for any institution, including Colorado State, that receives federal funds, that you have to affirmatively promote and recognize these kinds of biases. So if you have a candidate who is a person of color, a person of difference, uh, you really need to look beyond their difference and look at their qualifications and then do the hiring. So that, I would like to say, is unique to the NFL, but it is not unique to the NFL. And the recent attempts to allot draft picks and all of these other things, they're, they're getting challenged, but they're not getting at the root of the problem is the decision makers and the hiring makers 
really have to do a different kind of evaluation than what they've been doing to really look at the talent and then be rewarded with it. Mm. Because if you have a really talented coach, then you win. And if you win, then it doesn't matter what strike the coach is. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and male, female, you know, the, the opposition to female coaches. Why is that? The opposition to black coaches. It's not a stated opposition. It's like, well, this isn't how we've done it before. So a long way of saying uh, we have to look at the Rooney rule wasn't enough. And how do you change the owner's mind, the hiring, the folks who are in the hiring committee, uh, the personal connections? Because it has been, hey, I know this person. I work with this person. This person was with me uh as assistant coach or linebacker coach or whatever coaches, getting the people who are in those positions, like you're saying, uh, the gentleman um, um, who just won a Super Bowl and hasn't hasn't been any Eric Eric the enemy. Yep. Eric the enemy. Yes. Yep. And and let's just kind of segue into the next question because it has to do with kind of part two of the Rooney Rule. This past mm -hmm. March, the NFL decided to revise the rule. So this is from ESPN. The teams will now be required to interview at least two candidates from the outside of their organization for any vacant head co coaching job and at least one minority candidate from outside their organization for any vacant offensive, defensive, or special teams coordinator job. And they also expanded the rule into ex executive positions. Um, so what are your thoughts on this rule change and will it be enough to make change in your opinion? It will be enough to start change. Part of how you get to be a coach is you're an assistant coach, you're, you have all of these other positions, the support positions where you learn the job of being coach. Uh, this is, you know, if you're, if you're coaching a, a, a peewee softball league, you, you, have to figure out all the logistics so it's it's the people in those positions are able to learn the job and i go back to tony dungy his assistant coaches uh and he was very uh high on hiring uh african-americans and, and, and people of color in those positions to train them to do what he's doing and to be mentored by him so if you if you don't open up those positions and have people who are ready to step up in the organizations then it makes it harder uh, that so it's a it's a step towards the right direction and with the hope that in the, in the kindness of sense that you will really get exceptionally talented student uh sorry i i, I say students because you know <laughs> as we look at this from an act i look at this from an academic sense when i have uh african-american undergraduates are like well why aren't they be considered for these scholarships these fellowships these internships these jobs mm -hmm. and i say well you have to look for them in the application pool uh you have to look and say hey this person let me at least talk to this person do they have the skills the, the the foundation or can we even help them get the foundation because there is a talent and the drive there that the other candidates don't have this is not going to prevent and, I, and this is one of the challenges to to or the objections is this is not going to prevent white candidates from getting jobs mm -hmm. but it's just and the idea behind affirmative action which president johnson lyndon johnson said in 64 at a speech 
and if you're in the door, then you make yourself one. It's the, the idea behind affirmative action on college campuses is if you open the door, you still have to go to classes, you still have to take the test, you still have to do the work, but if you can't even get in, you don't even have that opportunity. So opening more doors in the NFL, as the, and the uh, NBA has done, as Major League Baseball still needs to do, is a step in the right direction. I think... So some teams, I think it's you got to hire the best candidate for the job. And it's like credibility, right? When you have all these African-American athletes that are the majority players, that is credibility. Many of them win Super Bowls, win trophies. They know how to play the game. So why aren't they getting the jobs? And I think uh, Kyle Shanahan of the 49ers kind of said it best. Uh, Kyle Shanahan talked about the diversity and and San Francisco has one of the most diverse coaching staffs, including Mm -hmm. uh, a female um, coach as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, I hired them because they're the best people for the job. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important as well. Um, So let's go ahead and move forward. It seems to be African-Americans tend to be praised for their performance, but when they speak out, um, for what they believe in, they tend to be punished. Most of us are aware of Colin Kaepernick. We spoke about that little area. However, former uh, Denver Broncos linebacker Brandon Marshall dealt with this as well. When he decided to kneel, he lost his. He was punished and lost his sponsorship for the act. So, Dr. Black, would you care to weigh in on whether or not you think there is a dumb, double standard and that we only value African-American athletes for their physical skills and not their mind? Short answer, Yes. Uh, longer answer is this is and I will try and keep this precise or, or brief because we could go back a long way understanding that you're hired as a professional athlete for your skills and the perception is that black bodies are better physically and this is going back to Slavery is like, okay, the reason why you get, you send a ship halfway across the country to get black bodies is because they can deal with the rigors of the work other, better than other types of people. That was the perception. Uh, and that, you know, you, you can do that uh, if you have the technical means. And that persists into understanding of professional athletes today. We're looking at a black running back a defensive lineman rather than an o-line or a quarterback because they have a certain certain physical set of skills and it doesn't matter if they're the most or least intelligent as long as they have those physical set of skills so that as long as that perceptions which permeates society uh this is this is the question of if somebody has a they considered in the same line if they are white or if they're black and this 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 happens uh, uh, when you when you, in, in all different aspects of society so yes there is a different perception and that perception is part of the reason why you don't have more african-american quarterbacks or you don't have more african-american coaches in the nfl where you do have it in a in the smaller league in the nba and just contrasting those two they're a lot of differences you know the nba you see the athletes without helmets and and, and you're much closer and it's a, it's a much smaller league and much more personality driven than the nfl but the minds of the nba players are respected more uh, I, i'd say this than generally in the nfl not not 
not all, not all isn't, but uh, yeah, there is, there is, and that's that's a problem. It's a problem that is not unique to the NFL. Sadly, it's a problem that persists in through society. One of the things I want to bring up is that the current we're we're doing this in, in the second week of June, which is the the second week of protest. Uh, highlighting the injustice for the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others, and that's a long list. This is the conversation I remind people that's been going on since 1619. Uh, do black lives not only should be respected as others, but do they matter at all? And do we have to have them as martyrs before you realize that they can be in addition to a wide receiver, a quarterback, a coach, a head of an organization? Long answer to a short question. <laughs> and I, and you, of course, hit it right on the nail. Hopefully the events took place are, you know, unfortunately they had to happen, but hopefully these events help make major change. Um, so we can hope. We can hope. Let's just last real quick. I thought it was a, a little kind of interesting kind of how modern african-american athletes kind of action do you think there's any other actions in modern day times do you think there are any similarities between the athletes actions compared to the 1960s civil rights movement the person to look at for that answer is kareem abdul jabbar when he was lou alcinder and a rising athlete he was with a group of other athletes jim brown prominent at the time who went to talk to a young man named Muhammad Ali about his stand against the Vietnam War and his protest against that. He, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, is still writing today. He has a new piece in the LA Times. So his legacy, Ali, Kareem uh, Abdul-Jabbar, is reflected in Kaepernick because one of the first things that people were starting to say about Kaepernick is like, he's taking a stand like Ali did. And Kaepernick, to his credit, when he when he first kneeled, he's highlighting this, and then he quickly became educated. He he would take what he he learned what I would teach in my African American studies and African American history class uh, that is available to anybody, not just if you enroll in my classes uh, about the history of of John Carlos and Tommy Smith and others, uh, Kurt Flood in baseball, uh, and others um, that took a stand and paid for it. And he did, Kaepernick did pay for it. So there is the connection, as, as we started out saying, the way that athletes are treated, African-American athletes are treated when they are make an intentional connection to the African-American communities that they come from or are connected to or are seen as a part of. Uh, and Kaepernick is a good example because he was raised by white parents. But he still connects voluntarily with the African-American community, with the support of his parents. So there is definitely a connection and a continuum, uh, not just with the, the activism that we're focusing on athletics in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and today, but going back to 1619 and the moves to abolish slavery and the achieved civil rights that are still going on for 400 years in this country. Well, that was uh, extremely informative, Dr. Black. I, I want to thank you once again. I feel like 
part of uh, part of the solution is, is inform- being informative and learning. I learned so much from this interview, and I really appreciate you coming on. How dare you learn things from a professor? <laughs> but if you don't, but if you don't want to learn things from a professor, uh, because there's usually a quiz and a, and a, and a course for you at it. If you look at the Innocence Project, which if you uh, do the contemporary research of students, Google the Innocence Project, they have a lot of resources uh, about why people are protesting now and a lot of links to other organizations and really to find out, you know, there are steps to educate yourself about why this is happening and then the furtherance of what to do. It's not just enough to know about it, but you have to do something with it. Have conversations with your friends. Uh, I like to to remind people that when I walk into a room as a black male, sometimes the conversation changes. But if you're in a group of, of just white people, the conversation is different. My voice is not there, uh, but your voice is. And if you hear what we've been talking about today, if you hear what the protests around the world are saying. Then carry those into the conversations where you don't see black, brown, and other voices. Talk about equal rights for women when there are no women in the room. Talk about how athletes should be respected for their skills, both physical and their intelligence, when there are no athletes of color or difference. The Innocence Project, go look it up. That is very powerful. Thank you so much, Dr. Black. Hopefully we can do this again, maybe later this fall. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. And I, I appreciate the invitation and, and we'll respond positively if you ask me again. When you ask me again, <laughs> not if. All right. Thank you. Thank you. What a fascinating interview. Once again, that was Dr. Ray Black of Colorado State University in the Ethics Studies Department. And that will conclude this podcast. For more information about diversity, please visit diversity.colostate.edu. And Dr. Black also mentioned the Innocent Project as well. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And that will do it for another edition of KCSU Sports Podcast. I'm Jonathan Gillum. I'll catch you next time.